Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is the 4th of November, 2023. And my name is Johan, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Falun in Sweden. And I will be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts today are Maria F., Nancy J., Sue L and Tonya G. Thank you for your service. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. The chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the questions and answers session. Please note that the speaker Harlan G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session, which follows, will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also, please turn off your video if you're exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for, for any reason. During the meeting, we'll post the link to our seventh tradition. This money goes towards the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings, and we also send contributions to our intergroup and WSO. We will post a link to the previous week's recordings. These are available by clicking on the link that will be posted in the chat box. And now the moment we have all been waiting for. <laughs> Here he is, the man, the myth, the legend. Oh, Lord, no. Here you are. I give it to you, Harlan G. Yeah. Thank you, you won. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. <laughs> How do you follow that? All right. <laughs> We're in the chapter uh, two employers. And when we get buzzing here, we get rolling. We're going to be on page 147 in case he does stumble. But before we do that, before we get to that point, what I would like to do is sort of get us rolling with some of the things we have been talking about. And that is the this chapter is the only chapter of the book that Bill Wilson did not write down. He did not write this chapter. This chapter was written by Hank Parkhurst. And Hank, Hank, bleh, Hank Parkhurst, yeah, I knew I'd get it out eventually. Hank Parkhurst could have been, should have been recognized as the co-founder of AA. He had infinitely more to do with the writing of this book than Dr. Bob ever did. Dr. Bob really was uh, co-founder because of default. He was the only one sober at the, you know, at the end of the, at the end of the day, he remained sober where Parkhurst did not, Ebby did not, uh, you know, so he was recognized as the co-founder. For the first few years that AA existed, there was no such thing as co-founder. Everybody just recognized Bill as the founder and there was no co-founder status, uh, bestowed on anyone. And then uh, right around the time after the book came out, it became Dr. Bob, because in September of 1939, Hank Parkhurst did return to drinking and he died drunk and lived out the rest of his life drunk. So he could not exactly be known as the co-founder of AA when he's running up and down the eastern seaboard 
telling people that Bill Wilson is a crook and you shouldn't send your money to AA and uh, he's drinking and just it was just a mess, just a, just a total mess. But he did leave us this chapter. Now, another interesting thing about this chapter, and it reflects on its author, Hank Parkhurst, this is the only chapter in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous where God is never mentioned. There's no mention of God in this chapter. Hank was not a person who wanted a God book. He wanted more of a psychology book, more of a book of how-to and, and so on. He didn't really want a spiritual angle to it. And so Bill held his ground and did write one of the greatest pieces of spiritual literature. Now, I'll let you in on a secret. This is just me. I don't really believe Bill Wilson wrote this book. I believe he wrote it down. I don't believe he authored the book. He wrote it down much in the same way that what happened up on Mount Sinai happened. Somebody wrote down what was being told to them. And I believe that the book is divinely inspired. This book and its contents have restored countless millions of alcoholics, drug addicts, sex addicts, love addicts, food addicts, uh, gamblers, you name it, back to society than all other methods combined. In this chapter, we primarily talk about several different things. One of the things that we're going to be talking about right off the bat is how to equate the instructions Hank is giving for industry to sponsorship. We're going to talk about sponsorship in the next little bit here, and hopefully we'll finish the chapter today so we can get into a vision for you next week. But if we do, we do. If we don't, we don't. I don't like to put that kind of pressure on myself. But the bottom line is this book has a lot of instructions on how to sponsor. Is the person serious? Is the person doing what you're telling them to do? Are they recognizing that their disease is fatal if untreated and that no matter whether that whatever, it's permanent, progressive, and fatal? I have a friend in, uh, in uh, Oklahoma and he likes to say permanent, progressive, and fatal. So we can get the three P's, permanent, progressive, and fatal. But the, the disease is a very, very serious situation. Is the person taking it seriously? And if they're not taking it seriously, as, as Hank will instruct the captains of industry to let the person go, sometimes the kindest thing we can do in our sponsorship is to let the person go. And I'm not talking about just... Oh, they burped on the phone, or there were they were they they said tomato instead of tomato <clears throat> to let them go. I'm not I'm not saying that. But when a person is two, three, four, five times, whatever that is, relapsing, are you really doing them any favors? Are you really doing them any favors hanging in there with them, or do they really need to hear a different voice? And I'll just share this with you. I have been in telephone sales for 40 years and I owned a company 
And we had about 30 employees. This was in my salad days, as it were. And a lot of my salespeople did not really want to do this. They didn't want to sell on the phone. They didn't really like it. They did, and, and I'm it's a it's a I don't like it. And I own, you know, I own the company. I don't like it. But a lot of people, I've had to fire them because they were costing us money. I had to pay them a certain wage and they were not producing any sales and they really didn't want to be on the phone. And so I had to fire them. Now, here's a person sitting in front of me that I'm firing who didn't come to work most days. And when they were there, they didn't want to do this job. And they demonstrated that to me repeatedly, or I, you know, I would try to reason with them. I would try to tell them, look, you know, we really need more production out of you. And then I would go to fire them. And some of them would start either crying or they were very, very upset that I was firing them. Now, I didn't run into all of them. I didn't run into every one of them. There, but there is a percentage of people that I would run into in my everyday life months later, years later, whatever that might be. And you know what they all said to me? 100% of them said this to me. And I said this to them when I was firing them. I would say to them, I'm doing this for you as well as for me. I say, you need to go find something that you do want to do. And this is not something that you want to do. And I'll let you in on this. This is what they all said to me. You were right. I found another job or a job after that one or after that one. And it proved to be the job that, hold on, I loved. So sometimes what happens is you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. And sometimes we think we're so loving toward a person by hanging in there with them when the kindest, most loving thing we can do with that person in a sponsor setting where they are not doing what it is we need them to do is to let them go. They need to often hear a different voice. We are immature, sensitive, perfectionistic rebels. And one of the reasons that I've seen over the years where sponsors hang on to sponsees that are not recovering and sponsees hang on to sponsors and they're not recovering is because of fear. They don't want to go out and do the work to get another sponsor. And the sponsee doesn't want to hurt the person's feelings. So rather than confront the person in a loving way, they're actually aiding and abetting their disease. And I know that nobody wants to aid and abet someone's disease, but that's exactly what's happening in too many cases. We need to take often an assessment. Is the person doing what it is that you are asking them, or the big book is asking them to do? And this is very, very important to make that, that uh, determination. And it's an easy determination to make. They're either doing it 
or they're not. And if they're not doing it, and this is a habitual kind of thing, then you need to sit down and have a come to Jesus meeting with yourself, have a come to Jesus meeting with them, and sit down and say, you know, I'm really not doing you much good here. You need to hear a different voice. And we can't let codependency and fear and all that stuff get in the way of it. When you love somebody, you often have to tell that person thing that they do not want to hear. I've done it with most of you. If you listen to some of the questions and answers over the years, there's plenty of times I know what you want me to hear. I, I know what you want me to say, but if I truly do love you, I am not going to say that. And I have confronted people over the years. And it's not that I don't care whether you like me or you don't, or you hate me or whatever it is you do. I understand what the right answer is. And so do you. I understand what the right answer is, and so do you. And sometimes we just live in that space that says, I know this is the right answer. I know this is the action I must take, but I'm not going to take it because I'm scared that this person is not going to like me. And the truth of the matter is, for me, and we're going to get into this in just a minute, for me, I would rather have you hate me and be alive, then love me and be dead or be in the disease on your way to dead, on the fast lane to being dead. So that's something that we all have to deal with. And this is something we have to put aside our fear, put aside our codependency, put aside these kind of things, and we need to charge in there and do what it is we often need to do. And again, I don't want to give you this impression that every sponsee needs to be fired and you need to let them all go. No, nothing could be further from the truth, but you need to take an honest assessment as to the person, are they doing what you what the big book is telling them to do. Okay, now there's three other things that we talked about that can be gleaned out of this chapter. One is the law, and we'll come back and discuss each one a little bit, and then I want to move forward and finish the chapter. The loss of industry, the loss of business that comes from addiction. You know, I have been on both sides of this. I have been the employer and I have been the employee. And the loss to industry, the loss to business, and the personal loss that is involved in addiction is massive. It is just a real shame that I missed as many work days as I missed, or I was there, but I really wasn't there. I was a lot more focused on going to the McDonald's that was right next door to our office and getting a milkshake. I was a lot more focused on getting candy. I was a lot more focused on anything but doing my job, which would have made me a lot more money. I was focused on anything. So there is a tremendous loss. And I've gone into the losses that I've suffered over the years. Uh, you can listen to some of the some of the recordings from the past, but each and every one of you have suffered lost time, lost opportunities, lost situations because of the vicious nature of this illness. Sometimes I look around and I realize the totality of those losses is so massive 
that this thought comes to my mind. It is only by the grace of God that I am alive. It is only by the grace of God that I am able to move forward with my life, knowing what I missed out on. My dreams, my aspirations, my loves, my wants, my desires went unfulfilled. I ended up hating myself. This is a disease of self-loathing. Every single day I would vow, I'm not going to eat such and such. I'm not going to go to such and such. I'm not going to do such and such. And by the time I knew what hit me, there I was doing it again. So if you were my friend and I lied to you every single day, I don't think you'd want to be my friend very much longer. Well, I didn't want to be my friend because I lied to myself every single day. And I treated myself in a way that put me in a position of shame and embarrassment when people would catch me eating the very thing that they knew I should not be eating, when people would make fun of me for my weight, when women would reject me, when I went, I was 35 years old when I went on my first date with a girl and the career losses that I had the dreams that went unfulfilled are massive. I sometimes look at my life and I say, gosh, I could have done so much better. And sometimes I look at my life and I say, it's a miracle I did as well as I did because man, I had one whale of a disease to overcome. And with God's grace and mercy and God's help, I'm able to live and I'm able to say that for the last 24 years and 11 months, I have not found, or uh, 10 and a half months, I have not found it necessary to put anything in my mouth that I wouldn't want on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, that I have not strayed from my program in 24 years, 10 months, not one single time have I strayed from anything resembling my food plan my and, and my program. So I am very, very lucky to be able to say that. The other thing we talk about is denial, that people within industry are in denial as to how many alcoholics they may have, how many, how much alcoholism is sapping their businesses. And me, I have a lot of denial too. I sat there doing the same thing over and over again, getting fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter and thinking there's nothing wrong here. It's just that I like to eat. I just come from a family where I like to eat or we're Jewish. So we use food or, you know, and then someone else will come into the uh, meeting and say, we're Italian. So we use food or we're Greek. So we use food or we're from Sweden or Brazil or from, from whatever, and they use food and they do this. All cultures use food. Heck, ants use food to celebrate when they come and invade our picnic. Ants do it. So every culture on the face of the earth does that. We are not compulsive overeaters because our parents 
gave us cupcakes instead of a hug. We are not compulsive overeaters because our mothers gave us a Twinkie instead of uh, taking us to the library. That is not why we're compulsive overeaters. We must divorce ourselves from any attachment to an earthly condition that caused it or an earthly solution. I'm gonna say that again. There's no earthly cause for this disease and there is no earthly solution. Nothing that is this of this earth caused you to become a compulsive overeater. There are siblings, twins, same egg, same everything. They shared a womb. They're born. One weighs 370. The other one weighs 205. One's a drug addict. One's not. One's a gambler. One's not. You either have this or you don't. And there is no earthly solution. Some of you that are here today are very wealthy and you're still here. Some of you today are very unwealthy and here you are. Some of you are white or black or green or yellow or you're gay or you're straight or you're tall or you're short. It doesn't matter. There is no earthly reason why you are a compulsive overeater and why is a question that you will never be able to answer. But here's the answer, because you are one. That's the answer, because you are one. Now, what are you gonna do about it now is really the question. What are you going to do instead of why? What becomes the operative question? And what I choose to do about it is I choose to work the 12 steps. And the last subject that we have is ignorance, that there are people that are completely ignorant of this in industry. That's how it's described. But are we ignorant of our of our situation? Did we really read page 30? Did we really read the doctor's opinion? You know what I was told about the doctor's opinion? I was told this 43 years ago. When I stood in a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous, I was 24 years old when I came in in 1979. I was 24 years old. I was 30 years younger than anybody in that room and two, three, 400 pounds fatter than anybody in that room. I was the kid. And that's what a lot of them called me was the kid because I was 24 years old. They were all in their 50s and 60s and I was 24 years old. Well. The ignorance is if I don't do something, it's not just going to go away. I could move here. I could move there. I could get rich. I could get poor. I could get a wife. I could get a girlfriend. I could get a dog or a cat. It's not going to go away. I have to have the idea in my head taken out that there is some earthly condition that is going to alleviate this. You know, I've often wanted to hang a sign, you know, when you drive into a state and it says, welcome to Arizona, Katie Hobbs welcomes you, governor of Arizona, welcome to Arizona. I always wanted to hang a sign underneath there because I see a lot of people coming to Arizona and they think if they come to Arizona that it's going to cure their marriage or cure their addiction, cure their whatever, alcoholism, drug addiction, food addiction. And I'd like to hang a sign underneath where it says, welcome to Arizona, the Grand Canyon state. If you're looking for a cure, keep going to California or New Mexico or Nevada, 
or Utah, because there ain't one here. Just because you're in Arizona doesn't mean that you're going to get cured. Hot weather is nice, but it ain't going to cure your addiction. I can promise you that. Not going to happen. So we have a situation where only God can alleviate this condition. Let's go to page 147 in the big book in case. 147 in case. In case he does stumble, even once, you will have to decide whether to let him go. Now, you may say, why would I let someone go after just one stumble? It depends on the situation. Maybe they just have no intention of doing any of this. You were, you know, and you just get a feeling in your stomach. We used to teach my daughter. I have a daughter. She's going to be 29 in December. Uh, she's an ornery little thing, but that's okay. But I have a daughter, she's going to be 29 in December. And when she was a little girl, we used to teach her, don't ignore your uh-oh voice. When you have a situation and you are saying, uh-oh, you call us immediately. You do not ignore your uh-oh voice. We used to teach her that. Don't get in a car with somebody you don't know. You don't have to go with somebody, no matter what they say. We used to teach her, don't ignore your uh-oh voice. When you're sponsoring, don't ignore your uh-oh voice. When your uh-oh voice is going off and you hear that uh-oh in your head, take a stop look and listen and ask yourself what you need to do. Okay. If you are sure he doesn't mean business, this is the qualifier. There is no doubt you should discharge him. That goes for industry, but does it go for sponsorship too? You bet it does. Now, before you discharge a person after one, you know, one situation, you can try to reason with them. That's fine. You know, give them another couple of chances if you want to, or her, give them another couple of chances, but you need to bring it to their attention. You have the responsibility, if you're the sponsor, of being the adult in the room. Stop waiting for the sponsee to take control of the situation. You're turning it over to the sickest of the sick. You need to be the adult in the room. If you are the sponsor, you need to be the one in charge. Don't turn it over to the sickest of the sick. If on the contrary, you are sure he is doing his utmost, you may wish to give him another chance, but you should feel under no obligation to keep him on for your obligation has been well discharged already. Self-explanatory. There is another thing you might wish to do. If your organization is a large one, your junior executives might be provided with this book. You might let them know you have no quarrel with the alcoholics of your organization. These juniors are often in a different, difficult position. Men under them are frequently their friends. So for one reason or another, they cover these men, hoping matters will take a turn for the better. They often jeopardize their own positions by trying to help serious drinkers who should have been fired long ago. Stop, look, and listen, or else given an opportunity to get well. After reading this book, a junior executive can go to such a man and say approximately this, look here, Ed, 
Do you want to stop drinking or not? You can ask that question. Do you want to stop compulsively overeating or not? You put me on the spot every time you get drunk. It isn't fair to me or the firm. I have been learning something about alcoholism. If you are an alcoholic, you are a mighty sick man. You act like one. The firm wants to help you get over it. And if you are interested, there is a way out. If you take it, your past will be forgotten. And the fact that you went away for treatment will not be mentioned. But if you cannot or will not stop drinking, I think you ought to resign. Beautiful, again, sponsorship advice, sponsorship instruction. If the person is telling you flat out, flat out, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that and I'm not going to do that. Let them go. They're telling you flat out, I'm not giving up birthday cake. I'm not giving up this. I'm not going to make amends to my ex-wife. I'm not going to make amends to this one or that one. That's not program. 148, top of the page. Your junior executive might may not agree with the contents of our book. He need not and often should not show it to his alcoholic prospect, but at least he will understand the problem and will no longer be misled by ordinary promises. He will be able to take a position with such a man, which is eminently fair and square. He will have no further reason for covering up an alcoholic employee. It boils right down to this. This is very important. Maybe you should write this down or maybe you should highlight this in your book. No man should be fired just because he is an alcoholic. If he wants to stop, he should be afforded a real chance. If he cannot or does not want to stop, he should be discharged. The exceptions are few. Does that have to be, can that be any more clear? Could that be any stronger a sponsorship instruction? If the per there's no such thing as can't. I'm not a believer in can't. There's will and there's won't. I believe Master Yoda was a wonderful sponsor. And Master Yoda says, there is no try, do or do not. There is no try, do or do not. And I believe that Master Yoda was a wonderful, wonderful sponsor. And if you look at uh, the, the, the what we just read here, if they absolutely will not do what you're asking them to do, what are you wasting your time for? What are you wasting their time for? Middle of 148, we think this method of approach will accomplish several things. <clears throat> it will permit the rehabilitation of good men at the same time, you will feel no reluctance to rid yourself of those who cannot or will not stop. Alcoholism may be causing your organization considerable damage in its waste of time, men, and reputation. What is compulsive overeating costing you in terms of time, effort, reputation? What is it costing you in terms of your dreams? Don't you deserve to live free? This is the only life we have. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is not a practice run. This is it. Every day that clicks by is a gift that we cannot ever get back. That's why they call it the present moment. 
The present moment is a gift from God. And the present moment means that we accept that gift. And the way to accept that gift is so that we can make the most of it. We have been given a life. We have been given a day. Every morning of my life, I recite a sentence and it lets me know that this is the day that God has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. And I recite that every day because I need to be reminded if I don't accept the present moment, I'm, I'm not accepting a gift that I've been given. The present moment is a gift. And if we keep wasting time with ourselves, forget sponsee, sponsor. If I'm continuing to eat, to purge, to starve myself, to do the things that I know are wrong, either overeat or undereat or purge or, or engage in anorexia, you know, if I'm continuing to do the things that are pulling me through pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, I'm treating myself in a way that spits on God because God didn't put me here to be made fun of for being the fattest person in the environment. God didn't put me here for that. And he didn't put you here for that either. He put you here so you could be of maximum service to both him and the people around you. Page 77. Our real purpose is to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Very important. I'm midway through 148, almost three quarters of the way down. We hope our suggestions will help you plug up this sometimes serious leak. Very important. We think we are sensible when we urge that you stop this waste and give your worthwhile man a chance. Forget about the sponsorship because we beat that dead horse to death here. What about giving yourself a chance? Are you in the kind of recovery that you want to be in? Are you where you want to be in a lot of areas of your life? If not, what are we waiting for? Let's inspire ourselves to reach higher. Let's inspire ourselves to, to try harder. When I was a little boy, there was a brand of gym shoe called PF Flyers. They don't make them anymore that I'm aware of. I don't see PF Flyers. But when they had the commercial, it would say, run faster and jump higher with PF Flyers. And my mother took me to Crawford's department store on Devon Avenue. And PF Flyers were like $7.50 for a pair. Today, I'm wearing gym or running shoes that cost $200, $200 for a pair of flipping shoes. I think my mother would faint if she came here and saw that I had a $3,000 chair and a $200 pair of gym shoes on my feet. When I spent the 3000 on the chair, I was, I gave the guy my MasterCard and I charged it and they're going to deliver it at such and such a time, such and such a date. And I thought to my, I could hear her screaming at me, $3,000 for a chair. Have you gone crazy? 
And I just, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, so I wanted these PF flyers because I was a fat boy and I wanted to jump higher and run faster. Well, let me let you in on the secret. It doesn't work. It's not the shoes. It's the person inside the shoes. It does not work. You don't run any faster and you don't jump any higher. If you want that, you got to go earn it yourself. But what we're talking about here is, are you at the place in your recovery that you really want to be. Now, if you want different, you got to do different. If you want the same, do the same. But if you want different, you are going to have to change behaviors and attitudes. And that can be one of the hardest things in the world to do is to change. I, I, I know I'm confused, but my mind's made up. I don't want the facts. That's the, the, I know I'm confused. I know I'm incorrect, but don't, uh, don't confuse me with facts. I just want to be right. And that's, you know, that's the lament of the, of, of my, my brain sometimes. Okay. The other day I'm at the bottom of 148. We think this sensible. We urge you to stop that. Right. Okay. The other day an approach was made to the vice president of a large industrial concern. He remarked, I'm mighty glad you fellows got over your drinking, but the policy of this company is not to interfere with the habits of their of our employees. If a man drinks so much that his job suffers, we fire him. I don't see how you can be of any help to us. For as you see, we don't have any alcoholic problem. Oy vey. I'm at the top of 149. This same company spends millions for research every year. Their cost of production is figured to a fine decimal point. They have recreational facilities. There is company insurance. There is real interest, both humanitarian and business, in the well-being of employees. But alcoholism, well, they just don't believe they have it. Now, let's just talk about that for just a second. In today's world, it is very different from the 1930s when this was written. In in Eugene, Oregon, I lived in Eugene, Oregon for nine years. That's why I behind me, I have a duck thing and I'm wearing a Ducks t-shirt because um, the Ducks play uh, kale today. So I'll be rooting for the Ducks. But when I lived in Eugene, Oregon, I found a phone book, a phone book from the 1950s, and it's it would say, let's say you're looking up Joe Blow. Joe Blow, his wife's name is Mary. He's a plumber. He has three kids. His kids are Mo, Larry, and Curly, blah, 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 whatever. Well, in today's world, that would be ridiculous. People would think that was an invasion of their privacy. Things have changed. Things have definitely changed. And people don't stay with one company like they used to. You know, the days of the gold watch are different. Does anybody know where the word tenure comes from? You know, you always hear college professors and they want to get tenure. You know where that term comes from? It comes from ancient Rome. And if a man worked for your company for 10 years, for 10 years, and he died, you were responsible for his family. So to earn 10 years or tenure, that meant that the employer was responsible for you. And you could not be fired unless it was just something completely egregious. 
But the word tenure comes from ancient Rome when the 10 years, if you worked for a family or worked for a man for 10 years and you died or got sick, he, they were responsible for you. That's where it comes from. Okay. But that's very rare today that people just stay with one company. I heard a, a interview recently and uh, it was a woman in, in uh, Flint, Michigan, and she was working for General Motors. And this is during the, the recent strike that we had and they were interviewing her. Um, I, I recently had someone that came here from Chicago who has a great deal of influence on me. And I started watching a new news channel. And this is where I found this. And they're interviewing the woman. She said, how long have you been with General Motors? Well, she was with General Motors for 30 years, 20 years, whatever the heck it was. And they says, well, how did you get, how did you start working? Well, my mother and father worked for General Motors. So this is second generation. And I was thinking, how rare is this? How, how, atypical is this in today's world very very atypical that you would find something like this all right we're on page 149 near the top perhaps this is a typical attitude we who have collectively seen a great deal of business life at least from the alcoholic angle had to smile at this gentleman's sincere opinion he might be shocked if he knew how much alcoholism is costing his organization a year that company may harbor many actual or potential alcoholics. We believe that managers of large enterprises often have little idea how prevalent this problem is. Even if you feel your organization has no alcoholic problem, it may pay to take another look down the line. You may make some interesting discoveries. And this goes back to the concept of ignorance. You know, we talked about lost denial ignorance, lost denial ignorance. And this is just pure ignorance. And please, when we're talking about ignorance, I'm not talking about stupidity. Stupidity and ignorance are completely, completely different uh, concepts. Uh, completely, you, you know, what? who's that comedian? Uh, I forgot his name, Ron White, I think. You can't fix stupid. He go, comes out there and, you know, that's like one of his punchlines. You can't fix stupid. But ignorance can be fixed by an acceptance of facts that are different from what you were presented with before. I am ignorant of how to speak Chinese or Greek or Italian or whatever. I know one thing in Italian, step one is paso prima. That's about it. I, that Beyond that, I'm, oh, and I probably know how to say some of the food. I don't know. But I'm ignorant of many, many subjects. Math being chief among them, I'm completely ignorant of math. But the bottom line is, is that I am not saying that a person is stupid. So please don't come, don't text me later. Don't email me later or call me later. I am making a distinction between ignorance and stupidity or, you know, or whatever. Ignorance is just no knowledge of. Ignorance is no knowledge of. And in this case, it's alcoholism. They just don't get it, that they have it. Midway or three quarters of the way down 149. Of course, this chapter refers to alcoholics, sick people, deranged men. What our friend, the vice president had in mind was the habitual or whoopee drinker. 
I want to be at a whoopee party. <laughs> they talk about a whoopee party earlier in the book. I've never been to a whoopee party. I would like to go one day. As to them, his policy is undoubtedly sound, but he did not distinguish between such people and the alcoholic. It is not to be expected that an alcoholic employee will receive a disproportionate amount of time and attention. He should not be made a favorite, you know, like the lost lamb. So here's the alcoholic and we're going to sort of make him a favorite. We don't want to do that. What the alcoholic needs most and what happens as a result of recovery. Now, I have a very grandiose ego, as you can tell, but we need to be and I don't like this part of it, but we need to be just another bozo on the bus. We just need to be another bozo on the bus. It is not ex if, if, uh, it is not to be expected that an alcoholic employee, oh, I read that already. He will not, all right. He should not be made a favorite. The right kind of man, the kind who recovers, will not want this sort of thing. He will not impose. Far from it, he will work like the devil. And thank you, to his dying day. One of the things that is most beautiful in life is gray. Neither black nor white, neither north nor south, but right in that middle, you know, it is a black and white program. You're either doing it or you're not. You're either abstinent or you're not. But when it comes to certain things, certain things, the most beautiful color that I can seek is gray, the combination between black and white in the middle, not dark gray, not light gray, but middle gray, middle gray. I need to be just neither black nor white, right in that middle, very bottom of 149. Last sentence, today I own a little company and the company that he owned was honor dealers. They sold auto polish and they sold supplies to car, to gas stations, tires, wiper replacements, batteries, uh, different oil, different things like that. Hank owned a company called honor dealers. There are two alcoholic employees who produce as much as five normal salesmen, but why not? They have a new attitude and they have been saved from a living death. I have enjoyed every moment spent in getting them straightened out. And the two employees that he had was Jimmy Burwell and Bill Wilson. Bill didn't work real hard for honor dealers. He really didn't. He spent most of his time working on the big book. Now, the honor dealer office was in Newark, New Jersey at 17 Walnut Street. And there's a plaque right in front of that building. And it commemorates the address as a national historical site because the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was primarily written in that office. And there were two offices that they uh, occupied. One was large and then they lost. They couldn't pay the rent and they moved into a much smaller office. But as we close out the chapter, two employers, 
What we want to remember is this is more about sponsorship and self-awareness. It not only helps us as sponsors or sponsees, it helps us as individuals to read through this chapter. And the temptation for a long, long time is to skip the chapter, is to skip this. Uh, in vision, they skip it. And in other circles, they skip this chapter. And I think to myself, what a mistake. This chapter is loaded with, with gold. And there are three concepts, there are three things about this chapter that the chapter illustrates beautifully, but doesn't really name. Those are loss, denial, and ignorance. And in keeping with loss, denial, and ignorance, we look at our lives and we say to ourselves, look at everything I've lost to this disease, the decades of time, the opportunities. I have been in a situation for a long, long time where I work fervently at letting go of my uh, at, at my disgust, my anger, my my just my frustration over everything I gave to this disease. You know, it's just very tough. The passions of youth, the lost time, the lost business opportunities. I could have done so much better. You know, I'm I, I'm just I'm just. I wonder sometimes, how did I survive? And sometimes I think to myself, I did okay considering I had this massive disease, this massive obstacle in my way. It's a miracle that I didn't take my own life. And it's a miracle that if I'm lucky enough to live till May, May 24th of next year, I'm going to be 70 years old. And you know, when everything is cut from the bone, I'm not a millionaire. I'm not a zillionaire. I'm not many things. I don't want to go into the whole litany. I've done it before here. There's a lot of things I'm not that I wish I could be. I wish I could do those things today. And it hurts me. You know, it hurts me. The loss hurts. But what I am is alive. And even if I die today, let's just say I die today, I've had decades of gravy because doctors have been telling me from the time I was a teenager that I'm going to die. Doctors have been telling me for a very, very long time, I'm not going to live very long. And today I can produce for you that my echocardiogram is sound, that my fraction is at, at uh, 60, which is fine, you know. Uh, 55 to 70 is considered very good. I'm at 60. I do have some regurgitation in my aorta. It's nothing to get excited about. It's very typical for my age. My cardiologist said if it was something to worry about, I'd let you know it's not. Um, my echocardiogram shows that my heart is good. When you consider what I did to myself, my God, it's a miracle that I'm walking, but it's a miracle that my echocardiogram of all things is so well, is so good. I'm just, my blood is good. I'm clean as a whistle and, and I have a good echocardiogram. And I had the hematoma, which was very serious. I still have a little vestige of it, but I'm healthy and I'm alive. And I walk three miles a day, again, six days a week. And I function, my bills are paid, I'm in recovery, I have friends, I have people that love me and I love them back. 
And it is the most beautiful thing to be a part of. Yes, I wish I was a millionaire so I didn't have to work and I could be a snowbird between here and, and Chicago. I wish that was my fate. I wish I could do that. I wish I could live there in the summer and here in the winter. That would be my first choice. But right now I can't. And so it it is trying. It is, it is you know, hard for me to, to come to grips with that reality. But you know what? I'm alive. I'm alive and I have a program and I have something in my hand here called the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's nothing in this book that is that is special for me. The, the instructions in this book are open to all of you. The instructions in this book are open to every single one of us. And I do have a sponsor who does yell and scream at me at times. And I have another person that I work with on certain uh, issues, different things. And I have friends and sometimes they yell and scream and, you know, whatever. But it's a good life. It's a life worth living. It's definitely a life worth living, especially if Oregon wins today. It'll be even better. But the bottom line, I'm not even going to talk about the Cubs because that's just a loss. That's a loss situation. But the bottom and the Bears, forget about it. We're not talking about that. But at least if Oregon can win today, then I won't vomit tomorrow when I watch the Bears game. But it's a life worth living. If that sounds like what you want forget about everything else and do different. You want different, you got to do different. You want the same, do the same. So we have loss, denial, and ignorance. And the ignorance is sometimes the hardest thing to crack. You know, the denial, the loss is hard to crack, but the ignorance, are you aware of the fatal nature of your condition, that it is permanent and progressive? Are you continuing to come on to the meetings and say, hi, I'm Fred and I'm a chronic relapser? Well, you know what, Fred? Why don't you keep that to yourself and put it in your pocket? Because nobody's a chronic relapser that doesn't want to be. If you really take a look at your condition and you read through this book with an open mind, you find that the chronic relapser is just somebody who doesn't work the steps, that doesn't accept that this is an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. And they keep dieting down to a certain weight. And when they get to that weight, they stop doing steps. They stop doing the things that they need to do. And they stop doing those things. And lo and behold, within a very short period of time, they're worse than ever because of the progressive nature of the disease. So we see loss, we see denial, we see ignorance. And most of all, what we see is the squandering of decades and decades of the one life that we have been given. I've given this disease decades and decades of my life. I'm not giving that son of a bitch one more second. I get this call all the time with current headlines. How can I be abstinent? Walk me through how you eating pizza is going to help the situation that is in the headlines. I can't be abstinent because of the Holocaust. And I can't be abstinent because of slavery. And I can't be abstinent because of what happened to the Native Americans. Walk me through it. 
If I really believed that me eating ice cream would bring back one victim of those gas chambers, if I really, really believed that me eating ice cream would bring one soul back from the dead, I would be eating ice cream right now. You got to let go of the BS. Those are excuses. There's nothing in this book that says, work the steps and everything in this world is just going to go your way. There's nothing in this book that says that. There's nothing in this book that says, man's inhumanity, the man will abate when you get abstinent. There, You show me that sentence. We are human beings and we have the privilege of doing right or doing wrong, of doing good or doing bad, of going left or going right. We have free will. God didn't put a bunch of robots on this earth. He put a bunch of human beings with free will. And some people do really lousy things, really lousy. But you eating pizza is not going to change that. Or you not eating pizza is not going to change that. Your eating habits, your level of recovery will not change human nature. And there are people that do a lot of stupid things. You're not going to change that. Okay? Before I turn it over, I just want to say thank you for coming. But I also want to remind you that Next week, we are on the same time unless you are in the state of Arizona. I'm going to change so you don't have to. I'm going to change the time I do it so you don't notice any difference. Okay? We're going to go to mountain time here in Arizona tomorrow. So we're going to change. We're going to be two hours behind New York and one hour behind Chicago rather than three and two. I'm going to change so you don't have to. If you're coming to our nightly meetings on Scottsdale between Sunday and Friday, all of those night meetings will begin one hour earlier unless you are in the state of Arizona then there'll be no change. But if you are outside the state of Arizona, those meetings will begin an hour earlier than they have been starting. We are going to be um, ending daylight savings time at 2 a.m. tomorrow morning. It's going to go from 2 to 1 a.m. So you're going to get an extra hour of sleep, which will be nice. The so just keep that in mind. And I know some of you are going to forget and you're going to, what happened? I, I understand that, but I'm just giving you the information. Um, I hope that many of you are going to come to the OA birthday in January 12th, 13th, and 14th. It's going to be a whale of a convention. It's going to be just awesome. Lots of stuff to do. Lots of stuff to hear. You're going to love it. It's going to be a game changer for you. You're going to just love it. I'm doing the big book study this year at the birthday. So I'm looking forward to some of you coming downstairs where everything is upstairs. Come downstairs and visit me a little bit. 
and come to the come to the big book study. And there's going to be an opening ceremony, closing ceremony. Saturday is a dinner dance. Saturday is a luncheon speaker, uh, vision, uh, meet and greet, Scottsdale meet and greet. You're going to love it. It's a great Scottsdale, uh, excuse me, oabirthday.com. Couldn't it be easier to remember? oabirthday.com. Oabirthday.com. Okay, I'm going to turn it back to Johan. 